All right, we're going to be in Ezekiel 16. We've got 63 verses to go. It's probably my favorite chapter in Ezekiel, maybe, maybe second favorite. But um, this is a story. Ezekiel chapter 16 is the story of every lost soul. But specifically, it's a story of Jerusalem. It's a story of God's chosen people, what happened to God's chosen people, uh, where they end up, and what God's going to do through them. A great title for Ezekiel 16 is from orphan to queen to whore to redeemed. That's the story of mankind. That's the story of God's chosen people. And this is the story of God's ability to redeem even the worst things that we can imagine. So he begins talking about the pollution of Jerusalem in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. So this is God's charge, right? This is God's charge against his people. Ezekiel 16, and so he's going to start by, he wants them to know what's wrong. What's God's, what, what is it that God has against them? The children of Israel are in exile there in the refugee city is Ezekiel. He's there with them, and the Lord gives Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, to deliver to those who are at refugee city so that they can understand why it is that they find themselves where they are. And ultimately, the beauty of it I don't know, I, you know, 63 verses. Uh, that's a lot for me. Probably not a lot for you guys. I actually, I actually taught Hosea in San Francisco at a church, San Ramon actually, but right outside of Oakland. And uh, I taught Hosea, and then at the very end of Hosea, uh, for the... For the end of the sermon, I read Ezekiel 16, and it probably took me 20 minutes just to read it. So we'll see where we go. But as we look at it, God wants him to know. I want you to know what's my beef. What is, it that, what is God's charge? And this shows God's loving care. If God didn't care about him, he'd just wipe him out. Like, okay. But because he cares, he wants them to understand he wants her to know what she's done wrong. So in verse 3 it says, So thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. So this indicates that in Israel there was this idea, like you might imagine, I think this idea even rears its head in the church, and that is this, um, we are better than you. <laughs> We're God's chosen people. Right? The children of Israel. Where were the ones God picked? But the Lord says, no, I pulled you out of the Canaanites. The people that you replaced, you're the, you're the core group, Abraham, Ur of the Chaldees. The Ur of the Chaldees is just outside of Haran. It's just right in the same area as the Canaanites. When God called Abraham, he called him out of the nations. So the Lord begins with reminding Israel... You were utterly and totally, completely lost, and then I called you out. I, I, I found you, in essence. And he says your, your, your parentage, your father a Hittite, your, your, or your father an Amorite, your mother a Hittite, these are two clans within the, the Canaanites. And then he says, and as for your birth, on the day that you were born... Uh, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast in an open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. So the God is saying, look, you, you were not elevated among the nations. You were not born of the kings. You were not somebody that people looked at and said, hey, man, that's a real winner. Let's pick this one. No, you were cast off you're thrown away cast into the picture is thrown into a field your umbilical cord not cut you're still lying there in all the blood and and filth that you would can imagine in a uh, 
in a delivery in a field and nobody came. Nobody cares. Everybody just left. You're just laying there. Cast off. And the reason he's doing this is because he wants him to understand that this, 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 one of the things that we have to battle against, I think, oftentimes, is this attitude of, uh, of superiority over the nations, or over sinners, over the lost. And the point is, we were lost, right? And then God saved us, so, so we were blind, now we see, so it'd be weird to have to look down on blind people. You get what I'm saying? So this is what he's this is why he's laying this stuff out. He wants them to understand. He wants them to remember. No, I pitied you to do any of these things. Nobody cared about you. You came from the same place and nobody wanted you. You were not exalted. You were not superiorly gifted. It says in Deuteronomy 26, 5, and you shall make response before the Lord your God, a wandering army armian was my father. He went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and came from there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. So his point is, you guys, you guys went into Egypt, you go into Egypt as slaves, nothing special then, neither. And you come out a nation from 400 years of, of bondage. So the Lord is trying to, trying to help Jerusalem understand this. And when we get down to the comparisons between Sodom and Samaria, that's going to, hopefully that's going to make a little bit more sense. It says in verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood live. I said to you, in your blood live. So the point is, God is breathing life into this baby cast off into the field, right? The Lord is taking care of her. He says, I made you flourish. How did she become a nation? Because God made her flourish. God planted her in the field. You grew, became tall, arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair was grown, yet you were naked and bare. The idea is that she's grown now from infant all the way to marrying age. It's, it's time to, to give her away. So she's come from orphan to queen. The king of kings and the lord of lords is the husband of Israel. Old Testament declares it. This is God's wife, the nation of Israel. The church is the bride of? So we should be familiar with the, with the illustration, right? The idea. So when we talk about unfaithfulness, you understand the picture in which unfaithfulness is. It's, it's within the confines of marriage. So this is what he's talking about. You grew and you, were, you uh, were mature and reached full maturity ready for marriage. So when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, you're familiar with this illustration. The book of Ruth, uh, you have the same thing happening to Ruth. Ruth is going to lie at Boaz's feet. Boaz wakes up, sees Ruth there. He throws hit the corner of his robe, his skirt over her. It's a pledge to marriage. It's a pledge to say, I, I am going to take care of you. I'm your covering. And so the Lord God is doing this to Israel. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. So this is a covenant of marriage between Israel and God described in the in the growth of an infant abandoned in a field, raised to maturity, and then God at the right time taking her as wife. It says, the Lord, uh, um, I made a covenant, entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, you became mine. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. So this is not talking about the blood of when she was an infant. This is talking about consummation of the marriage now they are husband and wife. God is there to cover her, wash her, cleanse her, take care of her. All the things we read about in Scripture that is a requirement for the husband to his wife. He loved her. He protected her. He lavished her. And he declared, she is mine. He cleansed her and he chose her. Then in verse 10, he clothed her. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. 
I wrapped you in fine linen, covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your wrists and a chain upon your neck. I put a, a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen, silk, embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful, advanced to royalty. Your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed upon you, declares the Lord God. One of the things that the Bible lays out for us, and one of the, you know, just kind of as an aside, is the ability within marriage for husband slash and or wife to have control over the beauty of their spouse. Uh, that, I don't mean that in terms of what you wear, how you look. I mean that in terms of how beautiful they are to you. That's not your wife's job, husbands. Husbands. Uh, uh, Wives, it's not your husband's job. It's, it's how we clothe them, how we wash them. Are you cleansing your wife? Are you, are, you, um, are you watching over your wife? Are you, the beauty of your wife is in your eyes by the things you say and do in your marriage. Here we see God doing it. He's given her everything he can give her. He's lavishing upon her all this all these things, and, and in the end, what is it that she has become? She grew exceedingly beautiful. She just grew more and more beautiful because of God's care over her. And that's a type for us. So she is growing, but so we have the, the, the story, right? The orphan grows up, gets married, becomes the wife of God. And now she's exceedingly beautiful. And then verse 15 comes the rebellion. The rebellion, the queen, becomes the harlot. Verse 15, it says, But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the whore because of your renown, and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and you made yourself colorful shrines, and on them you played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself images of men, and with them you played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord God. So as God describes her rebellion into harlotry, this is where biblical translators use all the nice words. And Ezekiel was a prophet who didn't do that. So I want, I'm, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to give you word-for-word word translations, but I want you to understand the charge that God is bringing. The Lord says, you took all the fine embroidered cloth, the linen that I gave you to clothe yourself in and make you beautiful, and you built for yourself a shrine. It's a raised platform. Later on, he's going to say you did it at every corner of every street in every town. And the point is that it is a, is a picture of the, the um, what do they call that, babe? Kathy, you got to think. What is it? The covering for the bed in Hebrew. What's it called? Hoopa. Whew. Okay. She remembered. I was like, it's, it's in there somewhere. I, I'm just thankful she can figure out what my mind's thinking. So they basically they took a bed, a chupa, which is a, sy a symbol of the covering of the Holy Spirit over your marriage, and they took this canopy bed and they raised it up on a platform, and then they did shows for every passerby. The closest thing we can compare that to today would be pornography. This is a live action pornographic shrine that the wife of God is putting herself in and providing shows for whoever 
is passing by. The important thing as we, as we take a look, just back up and take a look at what the text is telling us, is so that we can understand. Sometimes people go, why is God so upset? Well, where would you be? If that was your spouse. So as we look, this is the shrine that she's that she has built. It also says, you took all the gold and all the silver with which you made idols. So those idols are phallic symbols that are used in the show. So that is why it says, and you committed or you played uh, the whore with them. So they, they put together these idols. They were part of what she was doing on the corner. That's why he says, the like has never been nor ever shall be. There's not, there's not a, a, a worse way to describe what's going on in Hebrew than, than how it's described. And translators struggle with how do I say the things that he's saying without you know, being too, too abhorrent. And so that has been their challenge. And every preacher who has ever gone through it, at least honestly... Uh, he says, and you took my embroidered garments to cover them, and you put oil and incense before them. So you're, she, she's making, she's decorating her bed, the bed of her adultery. She's utilizing all these idols and for everyone who passes by. And then uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 57 verse 8 talks about the same thing, just so you can kind of get an idea. Isaiah 57 8 says this, behold, the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial for deserting me you have uncovered your bed and you have gone up to it you have made it wide and you have made a covenant for yourself with them you have loved their bed you have looked on nakedness so the idea of setting up this stage so that she has become a show for all who would pass by verse 20 and then you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me. So it seems to indicate in the text that some of these children are the result of the events that she's taking place uh, with, within the bed. But God still considers the children born to her his. He says, then you took your sons and daughters that you bore to me, that you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? One of the common practices, because much of the worship within uh, much of the ancient world revolved around sex was eventually the priestesses would become pregnant and you had to do something with those children. And rather than just having a bunch of kids run around, you know, that wouldn't be very caring. I mean, after all, they should, it'd be, it's better if we just put them in the fire. By the way, that's not too much different from today. Just put them in the fire. And so the only thing we exchanged was the fire of Molech, which was outside for everyone to see. We've exchanged it for the fire of the womb. But the burning is the same. The Lord says, was it a little thing? All your whoring, was that so small you had to go further? And you slaughtered my children. Verse 22, and in all your abominations and your whoring, you did not remember the days of your youth. One of the challenges in scripture is to remember where we come from. If we, when we lose the ability to sympathize with, with the sinner, we lose the ability to sympathize with the lost. We, we lose our ability to have empathy and we start to look down on them like they're logs for fire in hell. And we, that becomes our, our motivation. We've lost the sense of where we've come from. And so the Lord is saying, you don't remember. You don't remember when you were thrown away in a field. 
and I took care of you. And then you took your children rather than taking care of them and you threw them in a fire. You forgot where you come from. You forgot what I have, what the Lord had provided for them. You did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your own blood. But God cared for them. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place, listen, in every square. So it wasn't enough that it was just in one place. Now it's every place, every city, every block, every corner. At the head of every street, you built a lofty place. That's the bed on, on the bed stage that I was talking about. The lofty place. You made your beauty an abomination by offering yourself to any passerby. That phrase is somewhat misunderstood. Sometimes we think of that like a prostitute trying to hail a car that's driving by. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you, you offered yourself. She's already on the bed, already in action with whatever person comes by. And anybody who walks by is welcome to climb on up. She has, in, in every possible way, exposed herself to every passerby and thereby multiplied her whoring. Then verse 26, he goes on. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Okay, that's not what that says. Um, the idea now is he's looking, obviously this is the comparison of a nation, right? He's, he's looking at the whole of Israel, and he's saying, you were to be my bride, and here's your unfaithfulness, described in, in the most graphic terms that it can be described in. And then he says, so you gave yourself to the Egyptians, you gave yourself to the Egyptians. And the idea is that the Egyptians, uh, without getting graphic, the Egyptians are excited that you're doing so. And they're, they can't wait to have you. And so there's the Egyptians waiting to receive what, what should have been Yahweh's, what should have been God, something, something that was solely reserved for him, right? We understand the illustration because we understand what it is to be husband and wife. And we know how we would look upon that kind of a situation. So God was looking on their unfaithfulness to him as them cheating on him in horrific ways whenever they ran to Egypt for help instead of, instead of him. Whenever they ran to Assyria for help instead of him. Whenever they ran to the Chaldeans for help instead of him. And if you know anything about their history, you'll know all three of those became their oppressors. Not their protectors, oppressors. She gave herself away for protection from strangers and they abused her. This is, Ezekiel 16 is the story of Hosea, just a little faster. She is, she is going to ultimately be abused by them. The Lord says, this provokes me to anger. One of the guys I like to, to um, I spend a little bit of time reading, his name is, is Block. Here's what he has to say about uh, the situation. Driven by an insatiable lust, Queen Jerusalem intensified her uh, harlotrous activity, setting her sights on three specific targets, the son of Egypt, the sons of Assyria, and the Chaldeans. Harlotry has obviously now become a metaphor for political and military alliances instead of putting her trust in Yahweh. Jerusalem flirted with the world powers. The order in which these nations are named reflects the history of Israel's contact with them and their oppression of her. So the Lord says, you, 
you went to Egypt. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies. So that means that there was a, a time of correction. Uh, I diminished your allotted portion, delivered you to the greed of your enemies. And the daughter of the Philistines, this is the Philistines. You know, the Philistines are traditionally enemies of Israel. It says the daughters of the Philistines watched you and your behavior and they couldn't believe it. The Philistines watched and they could not believe what you were doing. You want to understand a little bit of of this concept that he's talking about in verse uh, 20, 26 and 27. Ezekiel 23, Ezekiel's going to talk about it again. In Ezekiel 23, verse 20, uh, he says, And you lusted after her lovers there, whose members are like those of donkeys, and whose issue is like that of horses. So, yes, means what you think it does. That's how Ezekiel talks. That's how he describes their sin and their desire for sin. How hard they're driven and, and running for sin. And the Philistines are shocked. So the reason that Ezekiel uses this kind of language is so that those reading it get shocked as well. We, we tame it a little bit and we lose some of the shock. But if you were reading it straight across, you'd be saying, oh my gosh, I can't imagine something like this ever being in the Bible, the graphic nature with which it's described. And the point is so that we're shocked at the sin of the nation and her unfaithfulness to her husband. Because our sin should shock us. It should not be excused by us. And it should not be tolerated by us. We should understand how God sees it. They might say, what's the big deal? We just made a peace treaty with Egypt. Well, you know how God saw that. You didn't come to me. You didn't bring these things to me. And the same thing occurs. You played the whore also with the Assyrians, verse 28, because you were not satisfied. So the idea is Egypt didn't satisfy her, so she went to the Assyrians. And you played the whore with them, but still you were not satisfied. Verse 29, you multiplied your whoring also after the trading land of Chaldea. And even with this, you were not satisfied. So the point is, they were, there was always someone else to run to, not Yahweh. There was always someone else better, someone else that she wanted, someone else that she would clamor for, but it was not Yahweh. So listen to what God says in verse 30. How sick is your heart? How sick, declares the Lord God. Because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. You built your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore. And you gave them payment while no payment was given you. Therefore, you are different. You swapped Yahweh as protector for all these other protectors who only oppressed. And this is the way God sees it. In verse 35, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings with your lovers, with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure and all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and I will uncover your nakedness to them and they will see it all. 
all your nakedness, and I will judge you as a woman who committed adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. So God's judgment is her destruction. You will be destroyed by all those you've run to. You'll be destroyed by them. They're not your friends. They're not your lovers. They hate you. You see similar language in the book of Revelation. Revelation 18, when you, is it 18, 17? I don't remember. Ask Jason, he'll remember. He's going through Revelation right now. But you'll see the, the woman who rides a beast being slaughtered by the ones she served. And the idea is the same. They, they were not your lovers. They didn't care about you. And so what will occur is their destruction, utter and complete destruction. She has an abnormal craving for that which cannot be satisfied. She is guilty of murder. She's guilty of unfaithfulness. She's guilty of adultery. And so God says, that is your crime. And the judgment is death. And so the nation is destroyed. Nation is destroyed by Babylon, and those left in the refugee camp are the remnants through which God will rebuild. Look what he says in, in verse 39. He says, And I will give you into their hands, and they will throw down your vaulted chamber, they'll break down your lofted place, they'll strip you of your clothes, they'll take your jewels, and leave you naked and bare. So you have this picture, right? You had the picture of the orphan becoming a queen, then becoming a whore, and now she's going to become what she was in the beginning, cast into a field where nobody wants her, thrown away, abused and used by everybody who she ever gave herself away to. And so he says, they'll take all, everything you have, they'll leave you naked and bare, they will bring up a crowd against you. They'll stone you and cut you to pieces with their sword. They will burn your houses and execute judgment upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. So will I satisfy my wrath upon you, and my jealousy shall depart, and I will be calm and will no more be angry. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? So the Lord declares the punishment. If it ended here, that would be justice, maybe. But it would be sad. But it never ends there. The Lord has a lot more to say. And the best thing he has to say is in the last verse. So don't get impatient. I still have seven minutes. <laughs> I'm never going to make it. So just so you know. I'm going to finish tonight just so you know too. But. It won't be seven minutes. So he's going to describe now. Remember I told you he's going to get back to the, the idea of this, this attitude that she had about how she looked upon others. You remember I said the Lord wants her to remember where she came from because she thinks that now she's uh, uh, um, elevated above them. So she's looking down on, on all these others. So it says in verse uh, 44, Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. And you are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite. We go back to that picture, right, of you were pulled out from among the, the Gentile nations. There was no... Israel until God called Abraham out of the Gentile nations. There was no chosen people. The world was the Lord's. 
And so as he pulls out his own peculiar people, he's saying, I, I'm, you're just being pulled out of the midst, the mix of them all. He says, and your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. When I think about this verse and this charge, I cannot help but think about this nation and how fast we can get here compared to those nations who have gone before us. So your elder sister is Samaria. She's to your north. Remember, Samaria is a northern kingdom. Samaria never had a godly king. Samaria was a wicked and adulterous people. And I'm sure that one of the things Judah did was say, man, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. And God's point is, no, you're worse. Because you had the example 150 years earlier, and yet you still, faster than they, grew more and more debased over time. So that you were worse. You were worse than they were. And this is all about that attitude, right? The attitude in the beginning that he says, hey, you're not better than everybody else because I called you out. You're not better because of everyone else because I saved you. You're not better than everybody else because you're born again. That didn't, that didn't elevate us to a, to a station through which we ought to say like the Pharisee, I thank God that I'm not like that tax collector. But rather, we ought to be like the tax collector who beat his breast and said what? Have mercy on me, a sinner. And so this is, this is where he's, this is the point he is trying to uh, open their eyes. Your conduct was worse. It has to indicate them pointing their fingers at Samaria or Sodom, comparing themselves. You know, at least we're not as bad as those guys. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her sisters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So he lays out the sin of Sodom. And he lays out, because probably for them, the same as it is for most people today, when most people look at the sin of Sodom, the only thing they can attribute to it is homosexuality. And homosexuality was one of the sins of Sodom. It's one of the reasons for which God judged the city of Sodom. But the Lord doesn't want them to overlook that that's not the only reason. That wasn't the only thing. They were full of pride. They had fullness of bread and idleness of time. That remind you of anybody else? Just wait until you have to wait in line for bread. You think people are cranky about mass? Wait until there's bread lines like there's lumber lines. They'll come. You can't sow to the wind without reaping the whirlwind. So... She had fullness of bread, idleness of time, and she did not care about the poor and the needy. I don't know, I don't know a better way to say it. I, I wouldn't say every human being is like this, but I would say as a whole, we are super selfish. Super selfish. We throw away enough food probably to feed all the hungry every year. Certainly all the hungry in our own nation. We just throw it away. Went bad in the freezer. They had everything they needed, but they didn't care. They didn't care about the poor, excess of food, prosperous ease, did not aid the poor and the needy. 
and they were haughty. They were raised up, and they did an abomination before me. Many things described as abomination. Specifically, I believe he's pointing toward the act of homosexuality here as well. But sexual immorality is certainly in the same ballpark. And the Lord's point is, yes, they had the sin of homosexuality in Sodom, but you're worse. Not they're so horrific. It's lucky you weren't one of them. God's point is your sexual immorality is worse. In verse 51, it says, Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous. That's plural. You made your sisters appear righteous. Sodom appears righteous compared to you. Samaria uh, appears righteous because of you, because of the abominations you have committed. Bear your disgrace. You also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. So the idea is, man, you used to talk about your sisters. The way you used to talk about Samaria. The way you used to talk about Sodom. The way you talk about others. The Lord says, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters, so bear your disgrace. It's always a challenge to beware he who points the finger because there's always fingers pointing back, right? That doesn't mean never point fingers. That's not what that means. But as we point fingers, we, ought, we need to remember who we are, right? Sinner saved by grace. I was blind, but now I see. That's who I am. Uh, uh, there, but by the grace of God, you know, right? This is, these are the, some of the ideas and metaphors that we utilize to help ourselves stay grounded, not haughty, not looking down. But hey, you know, it doesn't mean I, I just wave a wand over it and say it's all okay. That's not what God's saying. God's not saying, hey, all the stuff you did is okay because you were, you were willing to see that you're not better than them. No. But this is one of the charges. You intervened. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace. For you have made your sisters seem righteous. Now they're not righteous. They're guilty too. But the point is, the, the, the spotlight is on Israel. Spotlight upon those who were to be a light to the Gentiles have now made the Gentiles appear righteous. Now listen to what God says, 53. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. I will restore your own fortunes in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters, they shall return to their former state. Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state. You and your daughters shall return to your former state. Captivity will end. Judgments come to a close. But there are consequences was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride? Before your wickedness was uncovered, now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around you and the daughters of the Philistines and all those who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness, your abomination, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. That's the covenant of marriage. He's talking about between the nation and the Lord. You despisers of the covenant and breaking the covenant. Verse 60, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you Take your sisters, both your elder and your younger. I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant 
not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then he says, so that you might be remembered or that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you. So the end of it all, coming all the way down to the end, what is the point that God's saying? You've done all these things, and these are horrible things, and I'm going to hold you accountable, and there's consequences for the things you've done, and judgment that has come. And one day I'm going to stop your mouth because I'm going to atone for you. Yahweh will become their sin sacrifice that they might become the righteousness of God. On the day that I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Ultimately, it is an incredible picture for us to wrap our minds around the horror of our sin and, and having a right view of our sin is not something to be played with and the beauty of our Redeemer. Because I'm guilty. I can't read through Ezekiel 16 and not put myself in those verses and in those places. I can't pretend I'm not a, a, a guilty person within that and that, that my only hope for redemption is the atonement that God provided. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he became our atonement. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I just want to kind of bring Ezekiel 16 to us today. James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You, what's that word? Adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you not know that being in love with the world isn't that what he's describing in Ezekiel 16? He is war with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. He yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he has become our peace. Amen? We made it. Took me more than seven minutes, sorry. Once you stand with me, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for just the time we can take tonight. Opening up the word, Ezekiel 16 is so challenging, God, to, to recognize the, the weightiness that you see our sin in. Not to cover it up, not to pretend like it's not offensive, because it is offensive to you, Lord. God, I pray that we can recognize and understand and comprehend with all the saints what is the height and breadth and width and depth of the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because as God lays out all these charges and it feels so hopeless and it feels so heavy and, and it's just one whore after another whore after another whore after another whore and all these whoredoms and 
all these crazy examples of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And then the Lord says, I will atone for you. I will atone. I thank you, God, for the promise of the good news of the gospel in Ezekiel 16. That you made him who knew no sin become sin for me. So that I might become the righteousness of God. Not because I was better. Just because of who you are. So Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would remember who we are, where we've come from, where we're going. Provide us empathy for, for sinners that, uh, that are not within the body. And help us, Lord God, to be honest and truthful with what your word declares, not softening. God didn't soften anything in Ezekiel 16. I am guilty. I was a sinner. And Christ died for me and made me clean. That's how man can be saved. To receive that gift which God has provided May it not lift us to proud, to pride, where the word says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to who? To the humble. So may we help the lost humble themselves before the Lord that they might be lifted up. And in and through it all, God, may you be glorified and magnified in and through it all, so that we might be able to say with all the saints, what a glorious name our God has given us. And may we give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.